we are wrapping up our sermon series, um, The Manger Scene, the last few weeks. If you've been with us for the last three Sundays, we've been talking about The Manger Scene. And today we finish. And it's found, The Manger Scene is described by the gospel writer Luke. When he, he mentions the shepherds arriving, the shepherds arriving to the manger scene, and we see it in Luke chapter 2 and verse 16 where it says that they hurried to the village and they found Mary and Joseph and there was the baby lying in the manger. So what we have is we have these three characters at the manger scene, Mary and Joseph and the baby. So, and the baby. so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've talked about each one of them. We talked about Mary two weeks ago, and her, her backstory, her pre, pre-Jesus' birth story of Mary. We talked about Joseph and his pre-birth story last week, and today we're going to talk about the baby. The baby is the conversation today, the third character at the manger scene. We even have this little uh, prop here. Thanks again, uh, Kim and Dan. Uh, so we have this um, prop here. Um, I'm not sure as how exactly it looked. And I put it, we put it here because we had it up here and it's hard to see. And then I thought, is this disrespectful? Is this the, would he fall out of the manger if it was like sitting this way? That would be child negligence right here, I think. I don't know. But anyhow, the, the baby is the third character in the story. So I want to remind you before we get into the baby story, I want to remind you that the story of Jesus' life is written down in four different accounts that start what we call our Christian scriptures. Now, you may have grown up hearing the term Old Testament and New Testament. That's a whole conversation to have another day. We've had it before. I think the, maybe we, well, the best term is the Christian scriptures. We call it the New Testament, but we can call them the Christian scriptures. And the Christian scriptures begin with four accounts of the life of Jesus. And we call those the Gospels. And those books are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four accounts of Jesus' life. And I remind you again today what I've reminded you the last couple of weeks, and that is that each of these, care, of these accounts take a different approach to certain parts of Jesus' life. They, they tell the same story, but they have different perspectives, and they each take a different approach to the beginning of the birth of Jesus' life on earth. So Mark, for example, Mark skips it altogether. Mark just kind of says, ah, no time for babies. He starts at 30-year-old Jesus and goes from there. He just like, he, Jesus was 30 from chapter 1, verse 1. You know, that's Mark. Now Luke, Luke is the one that gives us the most famous Christmas story about the baby being born and placed in the manger. That was, that was Luke. But Luke also does something else. Luke tells the pre-birth story of Mary finding out that she was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. And so we get Mary's backstory two weeks ago, if you were with us, two weeks ago, we found Mary's backstory in the Gospel of Luke. And then last week, Joseph's backstory is told in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew kind of gives us the backstory, the pre-birth story of Joseph, and the afterbirth, I shouldn't say it that way, the post-birth, the post-birth story uh, also of the Christmas scene. Wow. Um, anyhow, the whole thing is going on here in Matthew, forgive me, uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke. So they all have a different purpose. But John, John takes a unique approach as well. John kind of starts with Jesus' adult ministry in a way, but he actually spends part of the first chapter kind of telling the backstory of Jesus, the backstory of the baby. So John, kind of, they all have a different approach, right? Luke for mom, Matthew for Joseph, and John for Jesus as far as the backstories go. And I want you to notice how John begins his gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 1. It says this, In the beginning, 
the word already existed. You say, well, the word? I thought we were talking about the baby. Jesus, what's this word? Well, as we read this chapter, we'll understand that John is referring to Jesus. And we, he's called a lot of things, right? The Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel. And in this case, he's referring to him as the word. He's referring to Jesus. And John says, in the beginning, the word, that's Jesus, the word already existed. Now, the word was with God. And the word was God. Now, as you read that, if you've been around in you know, the Bible and you've, you know, the, the, if, you, if you look at not just the Christian scriptures, but the, what we call the Old Testament, or maybe better would call the Hebrew scriptures. As you read the Hebrew scriptures, you might understand that's a reference towards something else. In fact, to every young or old, older Jewish person who were to read when John wrote this, if they were to pick up John's letter after he wrote it, or most likely because there was no printing presses, if they were to go to a synagogue where someone was reading John's letter after he wrote it, and they heard that, that verse right there, in the beginning the word already existed, anyone at that time who was familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, as well as us today, you know what they would think about? they would think about the very first book in the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis. Genesis is the first book of what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books that we think largely are penned by Moses, humanly speaking, as he's helping a newly freed slave group of people who came out of slavery in Egypt go towards the promised land and form a nation. And he's kind of writing out their laws that God was giving them to govern their new nation and kind of writing their history as it went. But he also wrote a book called Genesis, again, humanly speaking, writing down for them kind of their past, their ancestry, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, and even before then, he kind of tells the way back story of how it all began and writes it down. So in their Hebrew scriptures is this book of Genesis that tells the very beginning of it all. And John is kind of hearkening to it when he starts his book by saying, in the beginning, the word already existed. Because Genesis begins with the same three words. Genesis 1.1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how it all starts, right? And, and so John is saying in his place, this is when the, Jesus was there. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, I know that's always confusing to me. How was Jesus there? He was born here, and what in the world? And, and by the way, it says God was there. Where does it mention Jesus? And this brings up to one of the tricky, tricky doctrines about God that church people and Christians wrestle with. You know, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity, the teaching of the Trinity, that God is a triune, that, that there's Father, that God is one God. We believe it is one God, monotheism, right? Monotheism is one God overall, but he's also three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you wanted to know the number of doctrinal fights and church differences and denominational splits over things like that, welcome to the modern world, right? Welcome to the last, because as long as there's been humanity, there are a bunch of people who we like to nerd out over everything, including God's stuff, where the, you know, the crowd that's like, well, actually, you know, that crowd, the well, actually crowd steps in and says, this is, how, this is how God operates. As if any of us can fully understand how God operates. That's why I think it's dumb when people, you know, people will try to explain the Trinity. Someone came after church this morning and, and heard me do this whole talk at nine o'clock. And as they left, they said, I've always heard that it was described as like apples, applesauce, and apple juice. It's all the same thing. But, and I'm like, Cool. I've heard analogies too. That's awesome. Here's the thing. I've heard people give analogies to explain the Holy Spirit and someone else say, actually, that's heresy. 
So I says, well, here's how you explain it. Actually, that's heresy. People fight over this kind of stuff. And I always figured it's kind of dumb for human beings on their way to heaven to fight about the nature of a God way bigger than we can understand and break off relationships with each other because probably when we get there, we're all going to be a little off. We're probably all going to be a little bit messed up. We're doing our best with what we have. But you say, well, well, we have the scriptures. We have some information. And even then, it's trying to explain to human beings things that are too wonderful for our brains to understand. Picture God as a father because you get fatherhood. But he's much more than that, you know? And so I, 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 at some point, we've got to sit back and say, is, it, is, it, is he three? Yes. Is he one? Yes. How does that work? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's there. Do you get it all, Arlen? No. Are you okay with that? Yes. By the way, let me just say this right now about a thousand other subjects that Christians like to fight over as if we possibly should be alienated. It's one thing to discuss and debate and consider ideas. It's another thing to alienate and divide over. Let me just say one thing that we should all keep in mind. God is bigger than we can comprehend, and I'm glad. I'm glad that I don't have a God so little that my little pea brain can wrap around him. If I had a God so little that I could explain him with my little brain, I have a pretty small God. If I could fit him in the confines of my little mind and my compartments, and that's all he was, he couldn't have created everything out of nothing. He couldn't have done nothing because he would be, I'd have to be able to understand him. And that's what we do. Many of the times we make God into our image instead of understanding that we're made in his image. He's bigger than all of that. And at some point, you've got to step back and just say, I'm in awe. So God is, you know, monotheism, he's one God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're mentioned in, in the beginning. You see in verse 2, we don't have that on the screen, but in verse 2 of Genesis 1, it mentions the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. What in the world? And then you go from there, and you got John mentioning that Jesus was in the beginning with them all. Like they're all there, but that's just God. And so you, you want to see something crazy? In Genesis chapter 1, later on in the chapter, it writes about when God made the first humans. And here's what it says in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Time out. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Who's us, our us? Anyhow, like who's he talking to? Like, I mean, I know I walk around the house. Maybe you walk around the house sometimes and you just mumble to yourself and refer to yourself in the plurality. And maybe you do that at home. And I'm not here to judge you. Actually, if I heard you do that, I might judge you. I don't know. But I, I mean, I don't know if, who does that here. But, but here's God up in heaven. He's not, he's not being accidental. He's saying, let us, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. Wait, his own image? So it's his. That's singular. That's one person. First person, uh, third person, singular, his image. But then he spoke in third person, plural, saying in our image. I'm confused. Good. He's big. It's amazing. So uh, in the image of God, he created them. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, there's so many directions we can go in this verse that's not the point of today's sermon. I'm just trying to point out to you that God, in his essence, at creation, John is reminding us that Jesus is God and was there and it, with God. In fact, that's the amazing part of the story. If we go back to John chapter 1, and this is, I know you're like, what's this to kind of do with Christmas, you know, like, you know, the baby in the manger. This is John telling the story, the backstory of Jesus. So John chapter 1, verse 1, he begins his letter 
about the Christmas story by saying, the backstory, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning, the Word already existed. And the Word was with God. Oh, he was with God, like I'm with you. I got it. And the Word was God. Wait, he was God or was he with God? Yes. Okay. Okay, I got it, I think. I don't, but I'm going to say I do. I'm just going to say, God, by the way, I love to understand the word. I love to sit there and t- talk about these things and, and, and figure them out with other people. I love, I love science in general because it just keeps unpacking for us more of the amazing wonders of how God made things. It just shows us more that we didn't know before when science uncovers more of how God did what he did. It's like, wow, he's so incredible. But there's just some things about God that we're never going to understand until we see him. Right? This is one of those wonderful things. So in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 2, it says this. He existed in the beginning with God. And he was God. And he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Don't miss that now. God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. What do we do with that? The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. That's an interesting verse. That he was there, God created everything through him, and that he, referring to Jesus here, he gave life to everything that was created. And then he came and lived in our shoes and his life brought light to everyone. So he gave life, made life, spoke, was part of the creation process, and then he brought light through his life to everyone. In fact, in verse 5 it says this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Wow. Now, as John's talking about this backstory to Jesus that we'll refer to in a moment here, as he's telling this backstory with us, what's interesting is that a few verses later, John gives us his version of the manger scene. You know, the manger scene, we're talking about it for the last couple of weeks. We've been going to Luke, where Luke says that they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger, the manger scene, according to Luke. John gives us his own version of the manger scene, so to speak. John gives us his own version his own way of explaining that Christmas Day story that we talk about this time of year. Here's what John says in verse 14. He says, So the Word became human and made his home among us. That's John's explanation of the birth of Jesus. That's the Christmas explanation in John's words. So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? So, the Christmas story, according to John. The Christmas story, as as John unpacks it, is one of Jesus was born in order to die. It's an old Christmas song that says that. He was born to die. 
And John tells us the story. They all, all the Gospels, Luke, Matthew, Mark, that he was born to one day die. That's what he came for. That was, was, was foretold. That's what he came to do. That's what we look back towards. His sacrificial death for our sins and his resurrection. Ultimately, it's, it's about you know, Christmas. We think about Christmas and gift giving. That's the gift. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That Jesus gave his life. That's the Christmas story. It's the ultimate gift ever given. It's the gift that we see in, in Romans chapter 10, where, uh, Romans chapter 6, where it says in verse 23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what we have is we have the greatest gift ever given, not at the birth. The birth was the beginning of a life where the gift was given on the cross when he died for our sins and when he rose again to give us eternal life. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the gospel. We just start with the beginning of his earthly story. But did you know that Jesus' story didn't start on earth? It didn't start when Mary got the news from the angel or Joseph got the news from the angel, Right? It was way in motion before then. In fact, there are several places in the New Testament or in the Christian scriptures that talk about this idea that, that Jesus was always there and that God's plan was always in place. And we don't have time to turn to them all today. In fact, to be honest with you, I should not turn to some of them because if we open up those doors, they're going to create five other questions and sermons to talk about. We'll be here for four hours. So picking just one spot to turn to to make a point that we can turn several spots to make the same point. We'll turn to 1 Peter. You know who Peter was, right? Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus who later wrote some letters to the early church believers about Jesus. And here's what, here's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 18. He said, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. Gold and silver can be valued different times, different ways by different people. That's, that's subjective, he said. No, your life was paid for by something much better than any monetary system. Verse number 19, he says, it was paid for with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless and the spotless Lamb of God. It was paid for the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And that phrase, Lamb of God, is what John, remember John the Baptizer? John the Baptizer would say about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God. Sinless, spotless, never sinned. Was able to be our sacrifice because he had no sins to pay for on his own. He did what we've all failed to do. He was sinless. He became sin for us so we could become his righteousness in his place. The amazing doctrine of the imputing grace of God. It's a miracle. It's amazing. And that's what was paid for our redemption. The, the price was not money. You went to the store and bought some Christmas gifts this year for somebody and it may have cost you a few dimes. He gave his blood. He gave his life to give us the greatest gift ever. Restoration with God, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And then Peter says this, and this is the, this is the key I want you to notice. Don't, don't miss this. This is verse 20. And this is said elsewhere, but I'm just taking us to Peter only today. Peter said, God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. That's big right there. Long before the world began, but now in these last days, he has been revealed 
for your sake. This is big and this is awesome. God chose him as a ransom long before the world even began. Or as Revelations would say later on, we without turning there, he was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. His, he was a ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, when he says last days, what he means is these latest days. In other words, what Peter's saying is now in these recent times, he's been finally revealed to us. But it didn't start when it was revealed to us lately. It was God's plan from the foundation of the world or long before the world began. You see, how is that? I think it's important for us to understand something about God, and that is that God is not confined to our sense of time. God is not bound by our sense of time. We are human beings. We are human. Part of our humanity is we are put into a world, and one of our dimensions is time. We measure time as linear. There was before, there's now, and there's after. We break down those measurements of time in days, months, weeks, years, seconds, minutes, right? It's all time measurements. It's linear for us. Like for us in five days is Christmas Eve service, right? Well, that's linear. That's how we think as humans. But God isn't stuck in time. This is a dimension beyond our ability to understand. He just kind of moves in and out of time as a, as a three-dimensional object would move through a two-dimensional object and the two-dimensional object wouldn't even know what's happening until it touched its edge. We can't understand how, how God just comes in and out of time because he's timeless. For us, time is linear and that's why we wrestle with concepts like eternal, eternity. If you ever thought about eternity, if you think about eternity too much, it'll freak you out. Like, going forward into eternity, like something never ends, and never ends, and never ends, and never ends. If you really go down the, the, the weeds of that thought, it could almost like be like, ooh, ugh. what in the world? And that's the easier part. Here's the harder one. Going backwards eternally. The beginning. You know, we're just like, how could you never have a beginning? It just was always, it doesn't make you know. Here's the thing. That's hard for us to grasp because we measure eternity in time because that's how we're made as humans. That's how God put us into a time system so we measure things linear. But God's not in that. He's in and out all of it. From Jesus' birth to Abraham's uh, visit to, I mean, any time. It's not a matter of what happened first. It's just God. It's all of it. It's just time. And we don't understand time outside of time because we're human. And so that's why people hundreds of years and thousands of years before Jesus could prophesy. Why is that why people get prophecies that happen? Because you're like, how do they know? Well, because God revealed it. Well, how did God know? Because he's not bound by time. He was always there. And that's just big for us. I know it's big for us, but it's not big for God because he's bigger than us. But God had a plan. And as we can think about it, before the world began, in other words, it was always God's plan. He didn't just sit up one day and say, guys, it's been a long time down there and it's kind of messy and I thought we could fix the mess, but it's getting out of control. We need a new plan of attack. Call the board meeting. Get the stockholders in here. Get around the table. Okay, guys, what do we do? Someone proposes, hey, what if Jesus goes and dies? Hey, good idea. What do you guys think? Let's vote on that. What, next week, Thursday? I mean, you know, seriously. It's not like this was something that just came up later. It was always the plan. And that brings a question that you have to sometimes look at and wrestle to the ground. If God knew this was always going to happen, 
If God knew the mess that we would make with sin and the necessary sacrifice to redeem us from our sins, why did he make the whole thing in the first place if he always knew it would happen? That's the kind of stuff you rustle to the ground, right? Maybe you never have before. Welcome to the party. That's the big stuff. And I think the simple answer is it's because of God's nature. As John would later say, God is love. And everything about what God did is love. We see that in love, God created, right? In love, God created. That's beautiful. I don't know about you. I'm glad he created. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad he made this world and made me. That's a gift. The gift of life is the gift of God's grace and his love. In love, God created. I'm thankful for it. Most days I am. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful to be, to exist, to have life. That's the love of God. That's the gift of God as he created. But also in love, also in love, God gave choice. And this is where it gets difficult because we all value our freedom. No one wants to be forced by a spouse or by a parent or by any other human being to be controlled, manipulated without any free say-so of your own. No one wants that. No one wants to be able to say, I have nothing. I'm just a, I'm a wooden dummy and a lap that can't do it. Like, like our kids play with their G.I. Joe figures when we're growing up and they move from where they want to and they make them do what they want to because there's, no, there's nothing there. There's no will. There's no choice. But in love, God gave life. And in love, God gave choice. He said, I want you, what we should all want to do, to say, I want people to choose my friendship, to choose to love me, to choose to be with me, to choose to trust me. And God made humans and to, to, with the choice of saying, I believe, I trust, I'm with you, or the choice to say, I want to do what I want to do and, and go a selfish direction. From the very beginning, that opportunity had to be there or there is no choice. And we all value it. The problem is, is that we've made dumb choices. We've made a big old mess. Our choices have led to the self-centered decisions that on small ways or big ways have brought all the pain, suffering, mortality, death, and everything into the world. That's what humans have done with our, our freedoms. That's what we do with it. You say, well, God should never have allowed it. Then, then people blame God for it. What kind of God is that? And God's like, what? <laughs> you know, that was a gift, man. He gave you life and I gave you the freedom to live it. Now you're mad at me for the freedom? See, if we could go back to God right now and say, take off all the consequence, what he has to do is take away all the choice. And if he could do that, that would include my choice. And see, what, what we don't want to lose freedom of choice, we just want the freedom of choice without consequence. Or maybe we're like, God, can you take away everyone else's choice except for mine? Let me do whatever I want to do with no consequences and don't let them do anything that brings me consequences. Can you be like, like a, a controlling puppet master to everyone but me? And then kind of, you know, brush off my bad choices because you're, I mean, you know, we want to play a game, but God in his gift has said, look, if you, if you choose to do your own thing, it's going to be a messy, temporarily and eternally. But with me, it's life, it's love, it's good. But I made you, I gave you life. That's in love he created, in love he gave us that freedom. And we've made messes of it. But if, God, if today God could come to you and me and say, I can fix it all, take all the consequences, all the choice, and from now on you have no more freedom to do whatever you want to do. I'm taking away your ability to think for yourself, choose for yourself, and do, I'm going to take it all from you. All the mess will be gone, all the problems will be cleaned up, everything's going to be fixed, and you will no longer have any ability to choose anything for yourself You'll just be the wooden dummy. I'll move the jaw. You have no say-so, no freedom. You're controlled. Not any of us would want that. Not, not one of us would want that. We appreciate the gifts, but we also blame him for the gifts, right? But in love God created, in love God gave us those freedoms, 
in love with the mess we've made, he stepped in in his sovereignty and his power. In other words, that's how God's sovereignty, that's how the sovereignty of God, people wrestle with God's sovereignty, God's free, you know, free will. We make, it's like the Trinity. People make doctrinal breakups with people over free will versus sovereignty as if those are separate issues. Like God can't be big enough to be sovereign over everything, including the choices he allows us to have. He's bigger than our little pea brains can wrap around. And God in his sovereignty knew everything before it happened. He steps into the, thing, the, the things he gave us in love, redeems it, and then he comes back to us and says, hey, I've redeemed it. I've taken care of it. I've been a ransom for you. I've, I've paid the, the price of sin. I've conquered the consequence of death. And I'm offering you a restored relationship and eternal life. But once again, choice. Will you receive it? Will you believe it and receive it? If you do, we're good. If not, that's your choice. And that's God's love. And boy, it's such an important thing to understand at Christmas time because that's what it's all about. And it was God's plan from the very, very beginning. But here's the crazy part. Even though he planned it from the beginning, at some point, Jesus came and entered our world of time. He went and was born as a little baby. At some point, he became a crying baby. Can you talk about Jesus having messy diapers without being sacrilegious? I don't know. Breastfeeding, growing up, being a toddler, learning, being at all points touched with the feeling of our struggles and our frailties, knowing hunger, thirst, loss. Growing up as a human so he could be a more compassionate high priest for us today. Walking in our shoes, the virgin birth, the resurrection, all the miracles in the between, pointed people to him being the promised Messiah, and then going to that cross and dying. But all of it was planned long before the world began, but just revealed in those recent days, 2,000 years ago. He entered our time, and after he entered our time, fast forward about 33 years later, and it was human world time for him to physically suffer on the cross and die. And we pick up the story the night before Jesus was going to be crucified. The night he was arrested, he's going out to a garden called Gethsemane with his disciples where he would be arrested and the next day be crucified. It's now time, as humans measure time, for this to take place. And here's what happens. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. Interesting. Jesus is anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. It's interesting wording that Jesus is using because in some ways he's talking like, this is bad. Well, didn't he always know this was the plan? Why is he freaking out now? It's the same reason that you plan surgery three months in advance, but the morning of the surgery, you're all freaking out wanting pastor to pray with you. You know what I'm saying? Because now it's real. And so here he is, and it's time to do what, he's all, what, what was planned all along. But now in earthly measurements, as he's become human and dwelt among us, it's time. And he is going through what we'd all go through, the struggle. Verse 39 says this. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Don't miss that now. 
He's like, let's, can, we, can we rediscuss the idea? You know, he's, he's, he's about, you think about Calvary. We think of Calvary and we think of the physical sufferings. The physical sufferings of the cross were the least hard thing about the cross for Jesus. It was the spiritual suffering that was the worst. Becoming sin for us who knew no sin so we could instead become his righteousness. For becoming our sacrifice, becoming the one who is guilty and punished for all of our sins. Taking on the penalty of wrongdoing so we don't have to pay it ourselves because he wanted us back more than he wanted us to pay. That's the hard part of Calvary. So, so it's interesting that in, in, in time, he was born in a time during Roman rule. During Roman rule when the suffering of execution style was the cross, which is cruel. The cross was cruel. It was painful. It was shameful and humiliating. And, and, and it was done to make an example and spectacle of the enemies of Rome. And, and Jesus comes into our picture at that part of history to suffer and die that way, not because the physical sufferings were the worst part, but because in that kind of a death, we would understand physical suffering. And we could sit back and say, that's horrible. And then Jesus would be like, good, you have a little picture of the big picture. You see the suffering, that sounds bad to you. Trust me, I'm mistaking on the sins of the world is much bigger than that. And in this moment, he's like, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. And then he makes a statement that we, we just have to notice. He says, yet, yet, he says, I want, I want your will to be done, not mine. And boy, this is not my point, but it's just an interesting thing for those of you who want to, well, actually think about it, you know, that way. He's, he's saying in a moment here, Jesus is saying to the Father, my will is different than yours right, right now. I want this taken away from me, but not my will. I want your will to be done as opposed to or not mine. It's wild. It's big. It's huge. And Jesus surrendered in that moment to do something that wasn't planned in that moment, but was planned from the foundations of the world or long before the world began, but revealed at that time in history. And all of that was for us. That was the plan all along. It was a plan that started long before the manger. But the revealing of that plan came on that probably not so silent night when the shepherds hurried to the village in, in Luke 2. They hurried to the village and they found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. And that's our manger scene. And as I wrap up this series here right now, as we wrap it all up, that manger scene right there, Mary, Joseph, and the baby, we've talked about it for three weeks. Everything we've built brings us to a conclusion. And this is the point of the last three Sundays. This is the point of the manger scene and our taking the time to study it together. Is that if you've been with us on this journey, you'll have noticed something. And that is this. Every person at the manger scene had a not my will moment. Isn't that interesting? We think of the manger scene, Mary, Joseph, and the baby, but all of them had a not my will. Mary. 
Mary was told this news. She's engaged to get married. She knew that this would scare Joseph because it would probably scare Joseph off as changing her plans, her dreams. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you say come true. Not my will. I'm your servant. Joseph was planning to break off the engagement when the angel comes to him and Joseph decides, okay, I'll do the father's will. I'll let him take first seat in my home I'll raise the child, his child through Mary as well as my own. I'll figure it out. He was willing. And Jesus would go to that cross and before he was arrested say, I want your will to be done, not mine. Every single person at the manger scene had a not my will moment. And that's important because it's Christmas time. And for some people when you're little, Christmas is about what you're going to get. What am I getting for Christmas? And as we get older, sometimes we hopefully grow out of that. Otherwise, we're like, they didn't send me a Christmas card. I sent them a Christmas card. They didn't send me a Christmas card. What's wrong with them? You know, or we're being silly. But you know what life should become for us as we mature as adults, but as we mature as Jesus followers? Understanding that it's not about what we get. It's about what we give. That every person that's seen that we celebrate this time of year with songs and imagery and blah, 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 they had a not-my-will moment. And if they hadn't, if Jesus hadn't done what he did, if God planned to do what he unpacked for us, well, we'd have no reason to meet today. We'd have no reason to celebrate or exchange gifts. What I'm saying is that Christmas is what it is because people gave of themselves for others. Right? Christmas is what it is because people gave of themselves for others. And if you've lost the spirit of Christmas this year as we study the manger scene, if you've lost the spirit along the way and you're just kind of lost in your own fog of disenchantment, disillusion, you got the blues about it all, let me just remind us what it's all about. That Christmas is what it was because people gave of themselves for others. And for you and me to rekindle something in our life, Christmas will be, Christmas will be what it's meant to be when we give of ourselves for others. That's what Jesus did. That's what the manger scene was about. That's the path forward. You search all you want for love, joy, and peace at Christmas season, but that comes through God's spirit as we follow him, as we follow Jesus and what he did for us. And Christmas will be for you. Christmas will be for me. Christmas will be for those around us. It'll be what it's meant to be when we remember to give of ourselves for others. That's the lesson of the manger scene.